Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 39, for March 15, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Anytime our enemies fight each other, you'd think it'd be a good thing. My experience in counterterrorism is that more often than not, it's actually not a good thing when you have major infighting amongst terrorist groups. Part of the reason is that those who tend to be more radical, more militarily capable, more energetic from a terrorism perspective tend, tend actually to be those who survive and prevail in those conflicts, which ultimately increases the radicalization uh, of the individual group and their focus on conducting um, a series of operations that you know are, are lethal uh, and deadly. Further, you take a risk that those groups will seek to one-up each other to have the pride of placement to be the number one group and attract more adherents, which increases the risk. That was David Cadler, the National Intelligence Manager for the Near East in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He spoke at an institute forum in Washington, D.C. on March 13, where he offered a survey of how the U.S. intelligence community views and operates in the Middle East. Will there be a peace dividend after the defeat of the Islamic State? What keeps American intelligence analysts up at night? How likely is war on Israel's northern border? Where do human rights rank among the intelligence community's priorities? And does the Middle East really matter to U.S. interests and security? Catler addressed these topics and more over the course of his presentation and the on-the-record Q&A that followed. We'll hear the whole event after this. This is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. The Washington Institute continues to be an indispensable institution at a time when assessing our interests in the Near East could not be more complex or challenging. I'm truly grateful for this opportunity and for your commitment to improve the quality of U.S. Middle East policy. As the National Intelligence Manager for the Near East, I share that goal. As Matt said, I serve as, the, as Director Coates' principal advisor on this critical region. Every day, the NIM Near East team works to ensure that our partners and consumers in the White House and across the interagency have access to the best possible intelligence. We do this by directly supporting the development and implementation of national policies and strategies. We also integrate the intelligence community. That's the principal mission of the ODNI by managing and guiding all aspects of the intelligence cycle. This means a few things. Number one, we work with policymakers to identify and articulate their needs. Actually translate what a policy customer needs in terms of the intelligence community can understand and can actually implement. Number two, to manage and direct collection. And a lot of that requires some, some trades, some puts and takes and some trade space. As good as we are and as big as we are, we can't do everything equally well and we can't do it all at the same time. Third, to assess the quality of the IC's analysis. Um, Matt used a couple terms interchangeably. I'm the NIM, the NIO, uh, Alan Pino, who many of you also may be familiar with, is my analytic counterpart, core member of my team. So he's actually implementing the uh, the National Intelligence Council's analytic plan. Number four, to ensure that our products, both information, so collection and assessments, reach customers, often at the speed of war or whatever their decision-making speed is and needs to be. And then finally, to help determine and mitigate risk by providing unvarnished assessments of what intelligence can and can't do to illuminate a situation. And I tell you that more often than not, especially with this particular assignment, I spend a lot of time in the latter condition, having to explain what we can't do, what the limitations are, so that policymakers clearly understand the risk when an intelligence assessment 
or if intelligence information prior to assessment is provided to them. Here's what it means and here's what it doesn't mean. Here's how much confidence we have in it and correspondingly how much confidence you should have in it. And here are the things we can do to try to clear that up for you, but recognize that some decisions and some actions are taken before we fully understand the picture. It's just the nature of the business. So this also means setting expectations and balancing demands for increased emphasis in emerging hotspots while ensuring we have adequate coverage in areas of ongoing concern. This is particularly important in the Near East where there's, where there's an abundance of both and which represents some of the hardest choices facing U.S. policy makers. The other thing I'd highlight to you is that within the region, we have regional concerns, we have individual country concerns, we have sub-regional concerns, and we have functional concerns, and very often they all come together. So it's a constant balance and a constant need to drive integration between functional issues, regional issues, and single country issues. So Syrian chemical weapons employment. Is that a chemical weapons issue? Is it a Syrian issue? Uh, is a counterproliferation issue? It's, it's many things all in one problem. And it's, it's critical that we make sure that we bring all the right people and all the right information to bear at the moment of decision. So Matt and I were just talking uh, about the fact that I could easily fill my allotted time by discussing just one of the 14 countries my team covers not to mention the Palestinian territories and a series of non-state actors and other functional issues. What I'd like to do is provide an overview of the key political, security, and humanitarian developments in the Near East, and then use the balance of our time to answer your questions. But let me emphasize two initial points. First, given the open nature of this forum, some of my responses may be limited due to classification considerations. That's the classic intel guy comment right up front. Second, while I previously served as a policymaker at the White House, my current position is in the IC. I'd also tell you, I hear there's some interesting IC leadership development news today. I'm not going to comment on that either, aside from what I just said. Uh, as such, I'll probably need to defer any policy questions that are not intelligence related. So let's begin with the so-called Islamic State. And due to the tremendous efforts and sacrifices of the U.S.-led coalition, ISIS has lost more than 98% of the territory it once controlled in Iraq and Syria. It has lost thousands of its fighters and is a fraction of its former self. The myth of its caliphate has been exposed. However, as Secretary of Defense Mattis has emphasized, the fight is not over. U.S.-assisted forces are continuing to clear the remaining pockets under ISIS control. But at least in Iraq and Syria, the group's trajectory is headed downward. And given this, can we expect a peace dividend? This is one of the most important questions that we're going to grapple with, I think. Um, when I look at this area of responsibilities that I'm challenged with and I think about what the future might hold and what we need to do. And I tell you right up front, spoiler alert, my answer is no. There almost certainly will not be a peace dividend. And I, I do anticipate that we'll be under pressure to try to accomplish one. So what are the implications of ISIS's strategic defeat as a quasi-conventional force? While this news is welcome, we should resist assessing outcomes in a vacuum and must always be mindful of second and third order effects. For example, while ISIS has been decimated in Iraq and Syria, its ideology still resonates globally, which has serious implications for U.S. and allied national security. While travel has proven difficult, many ISIS fighters will likely attempt to return to their countries of origin, including in Europe and the United States, to conduct attacks or will now travel to new theaters such as the Philippines. Its affiliates outside the Levant are continuing to plot and conduct attacks, and ISIS will likely redouble its efforts to inspire adherents to commit attacks where they are, even if they never join the fight overseas. One notable trend we've witnessed is the shift in ISIS's online propaganda following its territorial losses. Previously, ISIS's narrative emphasized the building of the caliphate and included themes on governance, adventure, and victory. 
Its recent video entitled Answer the Call focuses on revenge and indiscriminate killing and is particularly gruesome even by ISIS's standards and demonstrated behavior. The key takeaway, ISIS is evolving and adjusting. In Iraq, ISIS has already begun shifting tactics and returning to its form as a clandestine insurgency, much as its predecessor, al-Qaeda in Iraq, had done. While ISIS was never above using um, civilian noncombatants or preventing them from fleeing combat zones and making them human shields, its new approach means it will likely seek to blend in with civilians to an even greater extent for its own protection and operational security. This, in turn, will likely force a competent but weary Iraqi military to develop an entirely new counterinsurgency approach. While different in nature and scope, their fight will continue. Beyond security, Iraq also faces enormous reconstruction and governance challenges. Most of the 2.6 million Iraqis displaced from their homes are in the Nineveh government and are Sunni. With the upcoming election scheduled for May, it's unclear whether those internally displaced people will be able to vote in their home locations, a point that Sunni leaders, fearing further political marginalization, have made repeatedly. On Reconstruction, it's been eight months since the liberation of Mosul, Nineveh's capital, yet its old city still remains without electricity or running water, and billions, billions of dollars will be required to rebuild the city. And many Iraqi Sunni remain fearful of the intentions of the Shia-dominated national government and militias who allege that they supported ISIS. Recall that during its rise, ISIS exploited Sunni fears of such Shia domination. Even if these do not lead to the group's resurgence, fears of reprisals and Sunni grievances due to political marginalization, discrimination, and delays in reconstruction may hamper the reconciliation necessary for sustained peace, which is a key U.S. objective. Now, look, my intention is not to take anything away from what's proven to be a highly successful military campaign. An eventual victory against ISIS should yield a dividend to the United States and our allies. But the fight against ISIS is not a traditional binary conflict. The United States, Iran, Hezbollah, and Russia are all combating ISIS. We're fighting the same enemy as our adversaries. As such, they too will likely reap the benefits of a peace dividend, meaning that there'll be some other things that they'll need to move on to. Take, for example, the Iranian-supported Shia militants who, until recently, were primarily focused on supporting ISIS. These groups are now free to expand their influence and consolidate political and territorial gains, which could further inflame tensions with Sunni communities. Iran and its proxy, Lebanese Hezbollah, are also potential beneficiaries who can now expand re or expend resources and attention elsewhere. As the DNI stated in his worldwide threat assessment that he just made last month, Iran remains the most prominent state sponsor of terrorism and is seeking to expand its influence across the region. This is consistent with the President's remarks from October of last year when he announced the Iran strategy. Quote, the Iranian regime remains the world's leading sponsor of terrorism and provides assistance to al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Hezbollah, Hamas, and other terrorist networks. It develops, deploys, and proliferates missiles that threaten American troops and our allies. It harasses American ships and threatens freedom of navigation in the Arabian Gulf and in the Red Sea. It imprisons Americans on false charges, and it launches cyber attacks against our critical infrastructure, financial system, and military. In Iraq, Iran has sent hundreds of Revolutionary Guard Corps officials to help direct tens of thousands of members of Shia militant groups and will likely seek to, to manipulate Iraqi affairs by leveraging these nodes of influence. Through their campaign in Syria and Iraq, Iranian military personnel and Lebanese Hezbollah fighters have acquired battlefield experience and have had the opportunity to field test military tactics and procedures. And with the ISIS fight largely over, they now have an opportunity to redirect their efforts. For Hezbollah, this means refocusing on Lebanon and together with Iran, spending increased resources and attention against Israel either directly 
or by supporting militant groups in the Palestinian territories. The result? Well, fairly obvious. Increased instability in Lebanon and a potential war with Israel. For Iran, this means consolidating its gains and establishing a so-called Shia Crescent that will connect its network of proxies and allies across the Near East and which could then threaten a range of U.S. interests. Consider Yemen, where Iran has supported Houthi forces that are embroiled in a military conflict with the Saudi-led coalition, which U.S. forces are, are advising and assisting. The U.S. government recently displayed Iranian-origin ballistic missile parts, which evidence Iran's support to the Houthis in violation of international sanctions. To date, the Houthi have threatened a civilian airport in Saudi Arabia, fired missiles at Emirati tankers in the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, and have threatened to cut off shipping in the Red Sea, which could cause dire economic consequences around the globe. There is no military solution to the conflict in Yemen. Any increased Iranian military support and assistance to the Houthis would only further dim prospects for a political solution, which the United States and our partners in the international community are actively seeking. Meanwhile, the Yemeni people suffer. According to recent estimates, approximately 21 million people in Yemen need some kind of humanitarian or protection support, with some 10 million in acute need of assistance. The estimated number of cholera cases has crossed 1 million, which we expect to rise given the upcoming rainy season. And an estimated 17 million people, nearly 60% of the Yemeni population, are food insecure, while 7 million are at risk of famine. Of course, Yemen is only one of a number of humanitarian crises facing the Near East. Sadly, another potential beneficiary of the post-ISIS peace dividend is the Syrian regime, which, with Russian support, has indiscriminately killed civilians, including with chemical weapons. The regime's current campaign in the Damascus suburb of East Ghouta has trapped 400,000 people with little to no food or medicine and has resulted in over 1,000 civilian deaths. More broadly, the Syrian conflict has resulted in the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. More than 11 million people have died or have had to leave their homes. Now, let me just pause there for a minute and point out to you that that's 50% of the Syrian pre-war population. So when you think about the impact of that, 11 million people, 6 million people displaced internally and 5 million people displaced externally, that is a huge human toll for that conflict. And it's already been seven years. So the scale of what we're talking about here across this region, um, I, mean, I don't want to be melodramatic about it, but, but this is, it, it, by most accounts, this is the largest humanitarian sustained crisis that the world has seen since World War II. So I think just important to underscore that when we start to hear these numbers and they sound very large and we think about what stabilization reconstruction costs might be, it's, it's not just the dealing uh, with those issues that are so critical for us collectively to understand and address but for those countries to come back together and those societies to, if you will, reboot themselves is going to be a very significant challenge that, that undoubtedly will be a multi-generational issue. According to the United Nations, there are currently 13.1 million people in need in Syria, and as I said, about 6 million internally displaced persons, and 2.98 million people, nearly 3 million people, in hard-to-reach and besieged areas. Very difficult to deliver here humanitarian assistance when you're under constant threat of, of conflict. So let me emphasize one point here. When people think of the intelligence community, the image that often comes to mind is our sensitive intelligence activities or the support that we provide to political or military efforts. And I'm sure if you listen to my bio, you, you've picked up that I've spent most of my career in the, Department of, in the Department of Defense, either on the operational side or in intelligence, and I've also spent a fair amount of time working counterterrorism issues. 
Um, what we often forget, though, is the emphasis that the intelligence community places on humanitarian and human rights issues, in addition to all the things that we have to deal with for either conventional military force application or for counterterrorism. Highlighting this brutality and ensuring that those responsible are held accountable is not only in our strategic interest, it's also our moral obligation, and one that I can tell you that I and, and my colleagues in the ODNI and the IC take incredibly seriously. There's a tendency to become numb given the numerous unfolding tragedies across the region. And it's important to remember, as I said, that every one of these statistics represents a life that has been lost or is suffering. Simply, the people of this region who have dealt with the ravages of war for too long deserve a better future and a better present. Sadly, this includes millions of those Syrian refugees, including those who have fled to Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey. These countries have demonstrated tremendous generosity in taking in Syrians, but this has come with, at a steep economic price and increased societal tensions, particularly in locations where public resources and jobs are scarce and already were before those refugees arrived. Regarding a peace dividend, the defeat of ISIS in Syria is essential to, to resolving that serious civil war. It's essential, but it's insufficient. There's still more work that needs to be done. While this shows no signs of ending, a conclusion of hostilities and the eventual return of refugees would likely ease pressure on all three countries that have housed those refugees. But this is not the only challenge they're facing. In addition to economic, economic instability, the Hashemite Kingdom is facing an unprecedented level of public anger and complaints about political reform, corruption, and unemployment. Facing spillover violence from terrorists based in Syria, Lebanon is also grappling with increased Iranian influence via Hezbollah, which has further exacerbated sectarian tensions. Inciting their links to the PKK, Turkey has initiated a campaign in Afrin against the Syrian Kurds of the YPG who in turn have withdrawn numerous fighters who are battling ISIS in the middle Euphrates River Valley. In contrast to the campaign against ISIS, which we share with our adversaries, this is an example of two U.S. allies fighting each other. I've provided an overview of some of the key dynamics facing the Near East, but due to time constraints, I've not touched on a number of issues, a number of other crises and challenges relevant to U.S. national security. And as I know, undoubtedly, they're on your mind. I'm just going to list them here because I anticipate I'm going to get questions. These include uh, the ongoing uh, Gulf Cooperation Council rift, which pits the Saudi-led coalition primarily against Qatar, Egypt's upcoming election and its campaign against ISIS in the Sinai, and prospects for peace between Israel and the Palestinians in the unfolding humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Like I said, there's no, short of, no shortage of hot spots in the Near East. So before answering your questions, let me leave you with just three basic thoughts. First, this is perhaps the most dynamic region on the planet. And if you had any of my other colleagues come out here, they'd tell you the same thing. I think that's just kind of what we say. Um, I'll be gainfully employed for a long time. My job is secure. The IC devotes a tremendous amount of resources and energy to assess intentions and potential outcomes, but the very nature of the region makes this task extremely difficult. As I mentioned, U.S. interests in the Near East align with both our adversaries and our allies. Second, the same factors that, give, that gave rise to both the Arab uprisings and ISIS remain. These include political instability, weak economies, corruption, and sectarianism. Until these underlying factors are addressed, we will likely be grappling with the same or similar issues well into the future. Finally, the Near East matters and is directly relevant to a range of U.S. priorities, including countering terrorism and protecting the homeland, maintaining our broader economic and security interests and those of our allies, and protecting human rights and addressing humanitarian crises. While determining how to address or resolve these challenges is ultimately a policymaker function, success requires accurate, timely, and relevant assessments of the region's economic, political, and security dynamics. 
In this respect, it's an honor and privilege to lead the IC's Near East mission and work with colleagues who strive every day to provide our consumers the information they need to protect and advance our nation's interests in this critical region. Thank you very much. That was David Cattler, National Intelligence Manager for the Near East in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Next, we'll hear the Q&A session that followed his remarks. The first voice you'll hear is Matthew Levitt, the Institute's Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. He moderated the conversation. David, I was particularly uh, intrigued by uh, your focus on um, the intelligence community's uh, efforts to support efforts regarding humanitarian uh, relief, uh, human rights, etc. cetera, uh, uh, though it's something that's come up in the uh, Worldwide Threats Reports and, and others uh, from Director Coates. Um, and I'm particularly thinking in terms of Ambassador Nikki Haley's comments yesterday about the need to, under certain circumstances, be prepared to act on our own. I'm not going to ask you about the policy implications of that, but could you dig a little deeper and tell us a little bit more about what <coughs> what kind of a burden this puts on the intelligence community, um, what this means in terms of uh, what types of assessments need to be made, and maybe where this falls uh, on the, the the spectrum, you know, where you started of telling people kind of what can and what can't be done based on the information we have in a situation like this. How complicated is it to move from, you know, predicting elections and successors and terrorism to humanitarian crises? So it's very easy. Oh, great. No, okay, um, next. So thanks for the question and for framing it in that way, that that's actually an intelligence question and not a policy one. Leading by example. Yeah. So what, I, think, I think what I'd say to highlight is that it's a burden, but it's an important one and uh, a challenge and a key responsibility. And what I mean by that is we have really two big baskets of responsibilities as we help policymakers think through potential options. So should there be... Uh, military action in response to a chemical attack in Syria, we generally have two sorts of things we have to we have to deal with. One is conventional military support. So what we would then draw on is, and I'll put it in our terms, and if these don't make sense, challenge me on it and I'll explain it. So first, foundational intelligence. Where are potential targets? What is the nature of those targets? Where are they on the earth? What is known about them? You know, what is their GPS coordinate? Um, we also do a lot of foundational work on the nature of the target. So, for example, if you want to strike a building, what is that building made of? Um, that sort of thing. We'll then work with military partners on target development. Some of that is the way in which the that military operation would be conducted. They'll have questions for us that are more technical in nature that the intelligence community can help address. But then we also get a lot of questions about network analysis and assessed effects. Why is that target important? What would the effect be, not just in the immediate physical sense, but what is the effect on the way in which that adversary could perform? So is there a target or a set of targets that could be struck, for example, that could completely eliminate the Syrian chemical weapons capability? Yes or no? And how many targets is that? And do what do we know and don't know about them? So military support targeting more conventional processes on the one hand. And then the other I'd offer to you is an even greater challenge, which is the question of attribution. So if a, if a decision will be taken by the interagency with the president's approval then um, to conduct any kind of retaliation, the question then is 
how much confidence do we have in a judgment that a chemical weapons attack has occurred at all? Who did it? How much confidence do we have in that attribution? What's that, what is the evidence that that's based on? Um, I, I would tell you between this job and my last job, I, I, I'm regretting not having gone to law school before going into either the military or into the intelligence community because I spend a tremendous amount of time, especially at this level, working with lawyers to make sure that we understand if authorities are implicated, meaning that there's some statutory or constitutional authority that's going to be relied upon to take an action, what are the necessary preconditions? What are the elements of the decision that must come together? And, and it's, it's an, this is a great job in that regard because the skill sets that we develop as NIMS, the things that the DNI is asked to provide advice on as the president's principal intelligence advisor, are not just limited to the substance of our intelligence business. It's also about how, how you translate that information into the right space so that others in the interagency that will draw on different authorities can make decisions to, to frankly make comments like that or to have those options employed. Thank you so much for doing this. Laura Rosen from Al Monitor. Can you give a sense, um, I hope I'm asking this in an intelligence appropriate way, of how you see Russia um, over the past year seeing a political path forward in Syria as the ISIS caliphate is being defeated? And, and have you seen a change in how they plan to work with the United States on achieving that? Look, also, thanks for that question. I'm, I'm going to answer it in a, in a frame that I think makes sense to me, which is that, um, look, I, I think if you go back to the September 2015 Russian military intervention in Syria, it's clear that Assad was on the ropes before and is not on the ropes now in a way that he was then. So first, in a strategic political sense, the Russian military intervention and their, their increased interest in Syria has actually not been helpful to resolve the Syrian civil war in a way that is most likely to bring enduring, stable peace and, frankly, a situation in which those responsible for any of a series of human rights violations will be held accountable. Um, I, I think easy for me to say as an intelligence officer that it's challenging to work with the Russians, right? I think we're almost genetically predisposed in the intelligence business not to work with them given our history. Um, but I've had several encounters with them over the years, um, and especially in this assignment, and I, I've just not found um, that many of the things that they have as their priorities are, are incredibly helpful uh, to the path forward in Syria. Uh, Mark Ginsburg with the uh, Counter Extremism Project. Can you comment on the post-caliphate disbursement of ISIS commanders and the competition between al-Qaeda uh, cells and ISIS and what you see emerging in this perhaps, if we're getting it right, this struggle over the future of extremist Islamic terrorist organizations in the Middle East? And um, can you confirm that al-Baghdadi is alive or dead? <laughs> okay, so I'll start with the latter one so I, I can't hear. Um, the thing I'd say on the, on the former, on the bulk of your question, is that um, while on the one hand, anytime our enemies fight each other, you'd think it'd be a good thing, my experience in counterterrorism is that more often than not, it's actually not a good thing when you have major infighting amongst terrorist groups. Part of the reason is that the, those who tend to be more radical more militarily capable, more energetic from a terrorism perspective tend, tend actually to be those who survive and prevail 
in those conflicts, which ultimately increases the radicalization uh, of the individual group and their focus on conducting um, a series of operations that you know are are lethal uh, and deadly. Further, um, you take a risk that those groups will seek to one-up each other to have the pride of placement to be the number one group and attract more adherents, which increases the risk. Now, I'm going to give you this, this caveat. Again, I should have given my standard intel guy caveats up front. Genetically predisposed to be pessimistic. So I wasn't that way before I started in this community, so it might not have been genetic, but it's certainly my genes are mutated in that direction now. Um, you hope that the best operatives do get killed off in those conflicts. But again, I think the social science, the research in this, and our own experience indicates that that's actually not often the case. So we need to watch this closely. We need to see what comes out of this, uh, how much fragmentation there actually is, what groups emerge, and, and really what they do operationally. Um, I'd also point out here that, that I get a sense sometimes that people have forgotten how anathema al-Qaeda is too. And it's not that al-Qaeda moderated or became some obsolete organization that's out there compared to ISIS. Yeah, ISIS was tremendously rapacious. ISIS was incredibly brutal. Um, I mean, just almost indescribable cruelty. Um, but that doesn't mean that al-Qaeda is a better option or that al-Qaeda is the moderate side, the moderate wing of the, of the jihadist movement. So um, I just wanted to add that because sometimes it's a, we have to make sure that people understand the spectrum in which these groups fall. It's a relative spectrum. You heard it here first. Al-Qaeda is still bad. Yeah. He said he couldn't answer that. If we could have a, a mic right here, the gentleman in the green jacket. David, you must have a list of uh, worst-case scenarios for the region, things that you, like four or five things that you hope won't happen in the next three to five years. Curious to know what you think is on that list. What are your top worries? There's a lot going on, and I figure that's an interesting way to hear what's on your mind uh, as the most um, damaging thing that might happen that you hope won't. Yeah, this is the, the classic what keeps me up at night, right, where I'm supposed to say nothing because I keep other people. No, um, <laughs> I can't do that. Uh, yeah, a lot worries me in this region. I mean, I, I'd say that in, in the near term, I worry about a loss of gains in Syria and Iraq. You know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done um, there. And I, I touched on a lot of that in my remarks about what's necessary. The, the Iraqis have a lot to be proud of. They have come a long way and have developed a tremendous amount of capability and self-confidence, and, and it clearly shows in the operations that they conducted at great cost um, to themselves, frankly, to liberate the cities that ISIS had held um, and to regain all that territory. Um, but it's still fragile, and it's, it's not just fragile because of ISIS. It's not just fragile because of any of the other range of security threats I highlighted. It's also fragile because of political reasons. Um, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done uh, within Iraq. And I'm just highlighting Iraq as just one example, you know, when I talk about the need to have political stability. Um, I worry a lot about the intersection of the functional and the regional issue in terms of our balance of effort and focus. Y yeah, my, my worries are a little more esoteric and strategic, I think, than um, than than you might have expected. In, in that we have to be very careful to balance the way that we think about things and the way we approach 
these things. There is a lot of overlap in the Venn diagram, as you'd imagine, between counterterrorism and Near East issues, and that's part of the reason why I'm in the job. Um, but there are things that we need to do for CT and priorities that we need to emphasize and resources that we need to apply that do come at the expense of other issues that are of high priority elsewhere in the region. I worry about the prospect of real major state war in the Near East region. What if a war between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah that emerges is not solely between the two of them but becomes a northern war that embroils more of the Levant in that? What if Iran becomes a party to that war? more directly uh, and overtly rather than clandestinely or covertly. And that becomes a conflict that doesn't just embroil Israel and potentially us by extension, but also many of our other allies in the region. And it is a real potential that's out there. The weapons of war that have proliferated in just the last few to several years in terms of their capability, ballistic missiles, land attack cruise missiles, um, anti-aircraft weapons are substantial and incredibly capable. And if you think about some of the issues that I highlighted as I went through my, my remarks here, especially when we talk about things that the Houthi have done with Iranian-provided weapons, think about the changing risk calculus in the region. Those weapons, as I said, were employed against the UAE and against Saudi Arabia. They're not just two of our allies. Those are also incredible international hubs. We have a very large number, not just of Americans, but of other uh, third-party nationals to say, again, to say nothing of our allies who actually live there in their own countries who are at risk. So, so what's changed in the calculus? What's changed in the logic that makes that proliferation acceptable and the employment of those weapons acceptable in terms of risk? Um, quite, quite, a, quite a development. And then I think on my, my list here, you know, I'd highlight to you that the societal issues, the long-term issues that I mentioned to you about youth unemployment, about very high um, birth rates, about very limited resource availability, about potential water shortages and other food shortages, uh, lack of critical and, and, and other infrastructure in a lot of these countries is substantial. And, and I think, frankly, it's going to require a much bigger solution than anything that we would do on a country-by-country country or a sub-regional basis. Uh, Eric Schmidt with the New York Times. Could you assess the, uh, the problem of detainees, the ISIS detainees, both of those who are being kept now by the SDF, numbering in the some thousands, uh, and the efforts to repatriate them back to their home countries is, is stalled, but also the thousands more that have been able to seep out and are either in various parts of Syria or, or leaked across the border into Turkey, um, perhaps not as many returning home to Europe as, as once thought, but what kind of threat do you think uh, all, both of those scenarios pose? Thank you. Yeah, so as you'd imagine, there's a lot I can't comment on uh, in that, but there are a few points I, I definitely want to share with you. Look, they can't be held indefinitely. Those, those prisoners need to be understood, known, identified. Uh, there's a great need to get solid data on who they are that can be shared so that not just us, but frankly, the international community has the, the right information to ensure that dangerous people are, are known, are prevented from travel, uh, are placed in long-term detention after adequate review, uh, and all of that. So taking the time to go through those prisoners and make sure that we know we do those things to know who they are and really understand the nature of that problem is critically important. Um, on the seep-out issue, here what I want to say is, 
I think there is cause for concern there. I think I think many of my uh, interagency colleagues have made that point, and I know that others, um, frankly, in other countries have made the same point. We need to be concerned about them. Anyone who would have gone to the caliphate is probably not just there for some sort of tourism. They probably didn't just decide that going to Mosul, you know, or going to um, going to Raqqa for you know a short vacation was the, was a great thing to do. They went because they were motivated to go there and participate in that movement, uh, if not fight directly. If they fought directly, they almost certainly picked up some real battlefield combat experience and may have been exposed to other training, but almost certainly were radicalized to a point where they need to be monitored and understood. They may need to be evaluated before they're allowed uh, to travel freely and reintegrate, whether in their home country or in a, or in a third country. I think from an intelligence perspective, I mean, back to this, what worries me? What worries me also are the known unknowns. I think it's fair to say that what we know we don't know are actually how many people left what country. We have some estimates. We have some numbers. We've provided those numbers, you know, in the past. But the challenge here is, you know, it, it, every one of these countries that they're now trying to figure out who's there and, and who might be coming back, um, they're likely to be confronted by people in that population that they didn't even know had left in the first place. So it's so it's not just the known number and the known problem. It's also this uh, this known unknown, those and those that might have gone back already that have not been detained by the SDF or someone else. <clears throat> Patrick Kloss, the Washington Institute. We hear quite a bit about uh, cyber attacks, those meant to disable uh, institutions or collect information or just to infect, to do damage later. Um, could you talk about, um, and many of those cyber attacks are, <clears throat> the attribution is by no means clear. Uh, could you talk about the intelligence challenges that, uh, that that places, both how confident are we that we can identify um, who's behind these attacks, and how confident can we be that we know about um, infections that have not yet broken out? So this will actually be a short answer on my part because I have a counterpart who's a NIM for cyber, and I just tell you I'm blessed that I do because I'm not a I'm not a cyber expert, but I do know enough to tell you that a lot of the same challenges that I highlighted and you raised in your question when I talked about the chemical weapons issue are 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 similar in the cyber um, set of intelligence problems. Attribution I, I think is is always amongst the most challenging thing. Uh, that we have to deal with in the intelligence community. Cyber, no exception. And um, I just as a walk-off point, emphasize to you that, again, you know, when you deal with, with lawyers all the time, as I do, the logical question then, even in, in a cyber attack issue, is, well, no, no, really, how much confidence do you have? How much information is available? And how much do you know that you don't know about that cyber attack? Because if you then start to advise policy on, well, what options are on the table and what authorities could be brought to bear, um, things that we would need to know from an intelligence perspective to make an assessment where we would assign an intelligence confidence ass assessment, confidence level, are not necessarily the same as the confidence levels and the, the, the preconditions that a lawyer would want to have met. And so the bar is, is actually quite high in cyber just as it is in just about any other functional issue. Thank you very much <clears throat> for a fascinating presentation. I'm Ariel Cohen of the Atlantic Council. I do a lot of Russia, Middle East work. And uh, as Russia announced today that they uh, 
may react if we hit Damascus. I want to ask you about the other ally of the Syrian regime, and that's Iran. To the extent you can discuss it, how would you evaluate the stability of that regime and its commitment to revive the nuclear enrichment beyond JCPOA? And how do you evaluate the condition of their ballistic missile program? Does that program represent a threat to our allies, specifically in the Gulf, to our base, military bases throughout the Middle East and to Israel? Thank you. Okay, so multi-part question. Uh, these are always, these are always a good one. Um, so let me focus on a couple pieces of this. How would we evaluate their compliance with JCPOA? So the the DNI has testified that that from an intelligence perspective, they have complied with the JCPOA, and the JCPOA has extended the timeline under which or how long it might take Iran to obtain enough fissile material to develop a nuclear weapon for a few months to about a year. It's also increased our knowledge, our, our capability to access uh, into the Iranian nuclear program, so in this case through the IAEA, you know, and through that treaty compliance. Um, but I would tell you that the intelligence community's job is not to determine are they complying, we monitor. So there is a difference there. You know, compliance is more of a policy call. But what I just gave you is the standard integration of the way that we see the issue. On the ballistic missiles, um, I think fair to say that Tehran has a different view of what 2231 means in black letter law than just about everybody else in the, in the international community. And what I mean by that, to be specific, is that the Iranians continue to maintain that, that they are not violating 2231 because they have the freedom for military purposes to develop missiles and test and do all that if they're not exporting them or using them for any, uh, for any other purpose. But look, the reality is they are exporting ballistic missile technology. They are receiving ballistic missile technology. There are, there are a range of other acts that are not in compliance with 2231 that we are monitoring and aware of. And I think it's great that, that our interagency colleagues and policy community have given many speeches on this and have uh, clearly illuminated all of the issues and concerns here. Are they a threat to us in the region? Of course they are. Those ballistic missiles have the range and capacity to reach just about any place of consequence within the Near East region should the Iranians choose to employ them in that way. And say is incredibly reckless proliferation of that missile technology uh, to surrogates and proxies some of whom are quite uh, poorly under control and not the best potential military partner or surrogate for them to choose, which gets back to my risk calculus and risk-taking comment. Uh, Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. You mentioned uh, earlier the rift between the Saudi-led coalition and Qatar uh, in the region, and I wondered if you could tell us what do you think fundamentally is is at the heart of this rift? Is it, you know, is it terrorism? Is it geopolitics? Is it clashes of personalities? And how destabilizing is that rift to U.S. interests in the region? And is that one of your, your worries that keeps you up at night? So um, also a two-part question. So I'd start with the, I'll do, yeah, but I'll do the first, well, I took two, but I'll, I'll do the first <laughs> part first, which is, um, so look, what the, what the GCC cites as the central issue is Qatari support for violent extremism, for terrorism, 
and um, interference within other GCC members and internal affairs. So that's the that's the crux of the issue. Um, is it well? Do do we believe them? Well, it, we've we've had a lot of political engagement with them to try to best determine what the the extent to which that's an issue. Try to ensure that there are some changes made, some safeguards put in place that the Qataris um, will implement and the GCC will agree to accept and, and understand. Um, the, the impact here, why is it important? Look, I, I think I get dangerously close to a policy prescription point if I, if I make an assessment of how destabilizing is it or how damaging is it to U.S. interests. But what I'd say from an intelligence perspective is we are always better off when our allies are on the same page and there aren't internal uh, conflicts amongst them, especially when you look at a, at a key block of allies and that multinational integrating mechanism in such an important part of the region. So it's, it's clearly in our interest that they're, they're all on the same page and they have peaceable relations with each other. I'm Philip Smythe. I'm here at the Institute. Um, it was a this is a question I have dealing with Shia militias. You said you're an esoteric guy. I am too. So I tend to follow those guys. Um, I've noticed over the last year we've had a number of incidents uh, in Al-Tanf. We've had another one now in Dar al-Zur. Uh, there's been an EFP attack against American soldiers in Iraq, uh, and there's been increased uh, words from a lot of these Shia militia groups that are <laughs> slash political entities uh, that America needs to be pushed out of Iraq and out of Syria, that we are occupiers. And this is the same kind of language they've used in the past. Do you see a trend uh, coming, I guess, where Iran's proxies may actually start directly targeting American forces, uh, I guess a little bit more frequently, uh, or that maybe they're going to take a far more aggressive stance against the United States. See, again, this gets back to my list of what keeps me awake at night. I told you I could have been up there all day going through this list because this is yet another one. Um, so I kind of come at it in reverse order. U.S. force protection, especially given my background, is amongst our highest priorities. Um, you know, and there's a, a big there's a big list there too, but. Let me just say up front that making sure that U.S. personnel, uh, whether military or non-military in any of these places, uh, are properly protected is amongst our, our most important issues. There is always a risk of that, and it has been a concern of ours for, she's probably well on now, what, almost almost 15 years in the in the Iraq case. I don't think that's going to go away. It, it's It's an incredible challenge to understand. So, I mean, without sharing any classified information, I mean, you, you just give you a sense of, of the challenge that we have here. Is that a strategic national intelligence problem? Like, what tools do we have here in Washington? What are most relevant to help provide that warning and get at that problem? So I, I just want to give you this aside here so, so you get a little bit more illumination of what the national intelligence community's challenges are here. We have to provide that overwatch, if you will, that support to DOD, to State Department, to USAID, to others that are there in the field, as well as NGOs and the rest of the international community. Um, but incredibly challenging to do that when you're, when we are, like, I am not there. I am here in Washington. So it, it takes quite the partnership, you know, to be able to do that and provide that warning. Um, I, I'm always uncertain as to how much confidence I can give a policymaker that, in fact, we'll be able to do that.
in a big difference. I mean, if you go back to warning, um, a warning doctrine between strategic warning, uh, which I tell you flippantly is somewhat easy to provide, you have a problem there. I have now strategically warned you. You're on notice. It's great. But what most people really want is operational tactical warning. How will I be attacked and when will I be attacked? Huge problems. Huge intelligence problems to try to get at. And the more granular the challenge and the more dispersed the target set, the more intermingled the potential targets and their potential attackers, as is the case that he's describing, just the, the challenge of that just gets exponentially more difficult to get at. I, I think another factor to keep in mind here, again, about attribution, you know, in this is to what extent could we reliably attribute an EFP attack conducted by a Shia militant group versus ISIS? Okay. It can be done, um, but I, I would tell you that at the unclassified level, it is not easy to be able to do that. So, yes, worries me a great deal, is in my job jar of things I have to help uh, others in the community deal with, in this case, especially DOD um, and state diplomatic security. Um, but one that is, um, you know, I think I've said now probably five times, is incredibly difficult. You got a big job jar. Zach in the back. Uh, thank you, Zach Gold, to CNA. Um, you've mentioned a number of your priorities in a resource-constrained environment, especially if resources are shifting to other theaters. What are you most concerned of developments and indicators that you might miss? So I really like that question because, again, it gets at the enterprise management challenge that we have in the ODNI and highlights one of the things that I mentioned to you when I did my introductory comments about the role of the NIM and the role of the DNI. I am, I'm always careful to ensure, try very hard anyway, that I don't fight the problem all the time. So first to think through, hey, what is the strategic decision we're talking about here? So it could be a shift in priorities from a regional issue to a counterterrorism issue or counterproliferation issue, as I mentioned in my remarks, or it could be a Near East versus a Far East issue or a Near East versus a European issue or a Near East versus Africa issue where resources and attention will be focused away for a period of time. So I actually try to approach that problem in sort of a reverse order. And the question that I'm asking myself all the time is what are my most important missions that must be done and must be protected? Where do we have to keep the bar exceptionally high? Where, where is it mandatory that those resources be applied? And then what specifically is it that's necessary? You know, what forms of intelligence are the most relevant, timely, predictive? Because they're not all equally uh, responsive against a single issue or a range of issues. So it's just a tremendous amount of work across the intelligence community to be able to have that knowledge because you really have to know what are our real capabilities, what is our posture against our priorities, and what does it take to actually get some things done? Sometimes you know that. You have it in your head. More often than not, you have to consult with a range of colleagues to ask them. No kidding. How many people does that take? If we pulled this many resources off, what would be the performance loss? Are we talking about uh, we go from two-hour responsiveness to four-hour? Or are we talking about we can't get it done at all? Um, it goes from a task that is hard to do but is it's achievable to something that is just completely impossible under those conditions. And I'd encourage you, too, to keep in mind that we also have opportunity cost, right, in a lot of those decisions because 
you you know what you were getting from an intelligence perspective before resources were re- were realigned. So you can, to a certain extent, say, if it takes x to generate y, well, x minus two, in, if it's just linear, may yield y minus two, but it rarely is. So you have that debate you have to get through about the law of unintended consequences, and then you have reconstitution time. Okay, it takes a long time to build a language analyst um, with with deep dialect knowledge and experience, someone who really understands the culture who can interact with someone or read intelligence or listen to intelligence and really understand it in a deeply meaningful way. If they get reassigned to work another issue, where do we where we recruit another person from to come back in and fill that void? How long does it take to get them in the system? How long does it take them to get back up to the level of training and certification, uh, situational awareness that the person they're replacing had? When the person comes back, if we didn't replace them, how long does it take them to reacclimate to the problem? So you've got real opportunity cost in there in addition that I find more often than not um, people don't appreciate in the first instance. So bottom line here, given all that, is that core part of my responsibility is to make sure that, that I'm, I'm giving the DNI advice on if this, then that. So if the new challenge is to do this and you're telling me that these resources must move, I'm my first pass through is can we still accomplish what he has told me my must protect missions are yes or no okay answer that question second question then is are there any things that we can do to compensate for that resource shift by changing the way we do business or applying resources in a different way now that's also requires some different thinking and then finally what does it mean in the long term what's the cost going to be real and in, and um, and intangible should that decision be made and those resources be shift, shifted? And what if they never come back? That's my favorite question to ask uh, lately. You know, if you know what your resource level is, and if they go someplace else, and let's just say, you know, a war happens or something, and they don't return uh, for one reason or another, that becomes your new normal. Well, um, now talk to me about system health and potential responsiveness. I see some knowing smirks by former intelligence community people in the audience. Let's have a mic over here at the end. Thank you very much. Uh, Michael Kurzig, who used to work in the Department of Agriculture and Middle East Agriculture. And most of the questions that I had on my list here have been asked, so I'm going to switch it a little bit. Do you monitor the situation in the country itself as far as agriculture goes, as far as production goes, as far as infrastructure? How are the people eating? And are we who were once upon a time substantial suppliers to the country of agricultural products. Do you monitor that? So the IC does, and I ask those questions. And I would tell you that that important, and I really appreciate the question here because I, I love that it's it's somewhat non-traditional, and it emphasizes a lot of the, of the alternate thinking and the alternate approaches that we're trying to take as we look at the Near East region. And frankly, some of my colleagues are doing the same thing. Um, I talked about foundational intelligence. Part of foundational intelligence is not, it's not just the military aspect of how do we prepare targets and what do we do and what do we understand. It's also about industry, infrastructure, um, economic capacity, agriculture, all of those things so that we, we can form some of these basic judgments about how viable is a nation. Where are the key regions within that nation? Where are the resources? I mean, if you think about 
um, put this in context of the of the ISIS campaign. ISIS did a very good job of identifying where the critical oil and gas infrastructure in Syria was and seeking to take that territory up front to exploit it themselves for their own economic benefit. Their intelligence officers probably did the same basic foundational analysis that we just discussed, went through and said, this is where we need to go. And then they probably had corresponding foundational intelligence in the can on what the lines of communication were, what roads could they use, what transportation hubs were available, where can I transship all that oil, how can I get it sold, where does all this go, how does all this work? So, yeah, that is a, that is a key thing. And as we do strategic futures projections and we think about the ways in which the region may evolve, we're also increasingly working with, with some non-traditional partners, with commerce, with energy, uh, USAID I've mentioned quite a few times. I, I All the love in the world for USAID, the challenges they have, the missions, their officers, their interactions with NGOs. I think that mission set is exceptional. It's exceptionally challenging. I've come to know quite a few people that work in aid and commerce and agriculture in any of a range of, of our partners across the interagency that I personally had no experience with until this job, that are, are just as out on the front lines in the current war fight as DOD is in many cases, trying to do stabilization and reconstruction in active combat zones. Um, incredibly challenging. And the questions that they're asking us to help answer are the very things that you're touching on. What are the routes that are most useful for humanitarian aid to come in? How secure are they? How reliable is the infrastructure? What did we know of the infrastructure? So what bridges were in place before the war? How many of those bridges are still there? How many of them can actually carry a load? If that bridge were to become blocked by a checkpoint, if it were blown up, if there was some other problem, how could we divert the convoy to get around that checkpoint? Where are all of the internally displaced people? Where are the best locations for us to go to as rapidly as possible, provision all of that humanitarian aid, and withdraw? So the, these are all things that rely very heavily on that sort of information. And I do consider it intelligence just as much as, as any of the more traditional forms of intelligence are. While we're getting a mic to Kate right here in the, in the, in the front, uh, let me just follow up on that. Um, you know, in the, in the latest worldwide threat report that uh, TNI gave, there is a section on, on human security, environment and climate change. There are some food and, and water issues in there. But several years past, this Worldwide Threats Report included larger sections on things related to uh, food security, et cetera. What, what goes into deciding whether or not to include something like that? Well, um, the National Intelligence Council works with the DNI to prepare that statement. So first let me say on uh, the, the chair, Amy McAuliffe's behalf, it is an incredible bit of work to get that done, to have that assessment prepared. I, I would not judge by the length of any individual section that there is an increase or a decrease in prominence of the of the issue. So it sounds like a little bit like criminology on the on the length of the sections and the um, you know where things sit. Um, all of those issues are still very important. We still have uh, personnel and resources applied against them. I think there are just some other things that that might have crowded that out a little bit more so in this ATA than uh, than others. It's a big jar, Kate. The Islamic State got a lot of attention for being one of the best resource terrorist organizations of all times. You mentioned they were able to identify the economic resources. I was wondering if you could discuss um, how challenging it is 
Okay, so I'll start with the second half first. And what I'd say here is that probably all I can say is that given that a lot of their resources corresponded to territorial control, and they've lost about 98% of it, they've lost a significant amount of their revenue generation capability as well. But I can't give you a number here in this forum on what might be left or, or how, how many, um, how much resources and dollars they had access to. How challenging is it to assess a terrorist organization that's like that? It's incredibly challenging to assess a terrorist organization that's like that. I'd say it's also incredibly challenging to assess an insurgency that's like that. So any, any non-state actor that has that kind of territorial control and resource generation makes the methodology that we would have used less relevant given that with most terrorist organizations, you're, you're I think, a bit more focused on how do they recruit, how do they conduct operations, what's their strategic intent, and how do I warn against a potential attack. But you've got a, you, I think you've got a more, um, I hate to say traditional, but you have a more, um, an, an easier to understand set of boundaries to apply to the problem. When a terrorist group has access to resources on the scale that ISIS had, it, it just, it just blows that approach um, quite a bit out of the water, and you really have to rethink um, what could they do with all of that money? <clears throat> what purpose are they going to put it to? What does that mean in terms of how many operations could be conducted and where they were conducted in the world? Um, I'm drawing a blank right now on how much 9-11 cost, but I, I think if – I'm just going to say if memory serves, it was on the order of like 200000 to $500,000. So if you have a terrorist organization that has access to tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, think about all the things that that group could do. Um, if you look at Raqqa, you look at Mosul, it's clear that they weren't plowing it back into infrastructure, um, even before the roads, even before um, the military campaign ramped up in, in earnest to forcibly evict them. So great concern about that. And also for my colleagues that are in that line of business, figuring out where all that money is gone. Egypt uh, Ashrok newspaper. Uh, would you please tell us your assessment about Egypt's ongoing operation in Sinai regarding counterterrorism there? And uh, what level of cooperation you have in that regard? And would you tell us something about Libya as well? Uh, do you have cooperation with Egyptian intelligence uh, in Libya? Okay, so I can't comment on um, cooperation with Libya, especially on intelligence. I wouldn't comment on intelligence cooperation anyway, but Libya is not in my portfolio um, anymore just since some internal changes. Um, Egypt has a great challenge in, in Sinai with ISIS-Sinai and with other uh, internal security problems that have, that have been there for, uh, for some time. I, I was in Egypt myself late last year in consultation with our, with our Egyptian colleagues and partners, and we have, a, we have a tremendous relationship with the government of Egypt, proud to assist the government of Egypt um, as we are requested to do in addressing those challenges in a, in a range of responses. I mean, I'm being a standard intel guy here, kind of talking around the specifics of what we're doing. Um, but what I'd say is we certainly have a shared fight against ISIS. And ISIS in Sinai has been the, the focus of ISIS propaganda on and off uh, for a few to several years as a key node in the, in the ISIS architecture. So um, we have committed to help 
the Egyptian government and the Egyptian people in the ways in which they've asked us to do. Uh, Stanley Colbert, I'd like to pursue this idea, which I hear all the time. The only solution is a political settlement, because I don't understand it. Go back to Vietnam. We had a political settlement. And then the North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam. It was a military solution. Political settlements can work, it seems to me, if you have people with good, you know, some goodwill, legitimate grievances, and they exercise control over their subordinates. It is the second element here that puzzles me. If Baghdadi was, is still alive, and if he went public tomorrow and said, we're going to have a negotiated agreement, would the people in ISIS go along? Or would they just continue fighting? This is my concern, that we are looking at bottom-up conflicts, not top-down. If it's a bottom-up conflict, I don't see how political solutions can work. Yeah, so I think what I said in the ISIS case is that the de-ISIS requirement is the closest wolf to the sled, I didn't quite put it that way, but that's the way I'm putting it now, and that it needs to be decisively resolved before you could get a durable political solution, frankly, of any kind, to address the Syrian civil war. Um, in military terms, a lesser included contingency in the broader Syrian civil war. Now, I, I think, because I also have a degree in political science, I think, I think the thing I would emphasize first about political versus military solutions, in conflicts that are that involve armed conflict, they typically end as a result of the three, these three general outcomes. Number one, one side decisively defeats the other. That's not happening here. Number two, one side gives up. They just reach a point of fatigue, they run out of resources, and they capitulate. That's not happening here. Number three, the outside parties that are either supporting the conflict in one way or another um, or have the capacity to intercede in a decisive way, decide to do so. So that is an inherently political process. That's a, that's a partial political solution, but you have to have a corresponding internal political solution or you can't keep the peace to the extent you get one through that external negotiation or the external resolution. So what I mean to say here is I doubt very much that sufficient military, military force could be mustered to accomplish outcomes one or two, which drives you to outcome three, which is a more political uh, effort. Not that what I think is that people are going to get together and just decide politically or cast a vote that, hey, the war needs to end, and that's it. It satisfies everything. Um, a bit more complicated than that. But um, again, as my walk-off comment here on this, I, I'm just convinced that that it's just unlikely that many of these conflicts would end Syria, Yemen, based on one side decisively defeating another. Mike Kraft, former State Department counterterrorism office. But before that, I worked on <coughs> Middle East foreign assistance and FMS. I'll just follow up the gentleman's question on Egypt. Um, what's your evaluation? Why is the Egyptian military <coughs> having such a hard time dealing with ISIS? Is there problems with organization, training, uh, command and control? I mean, they even had the Israelis help them out at one point. Um, 
you see the situation improving? And kind of related to this, on the other side is, how do you evaluate the role of uh, Muslim Brotherhood in their position now? Um, look, I, I guess I'd like to answer just the first the first two parts here. And what I'd say is that ISIS is in Sinai, as ISIS was in many other areas, in, in the challenge that they move in and out of populated areas, increases the challenge of identifying them, anticipating what they're going to do, and targeting them as individuals or as a group, increases the risk to civilians, increases the risk to infrastructure, potential collateral damage. So the challenge that the Egyptian security services have, both the military and their intelligence services in this, is is just having that capability to get at this organization while it does that. Uh, at the same time, they were incredibly well-resourced. So you get a capable um, terrorist organization. The, the Egyptian armed services and security services are trying to deal with it, but it, it's just not a straightforward go out there and um, find them, defeat them in, in one battle, and, and you move on. I think that the um, the renewed Egyptian offensive against ISIS in Sinai is already showing fruit, and I think if, if sustained, should result in some more uh, tangible reduction of ISIS Sinai in terms of capability and hopefully in numbers as well. So more to be seen there. So I'm uh, I'm optimistic that the current operation, the current campaign against them. Uh, will yield will yield fruit that will be beneficial to the Egyptian people and and us by extension. John Parker, NDU. Uh, on your priority of U.S. force protection, I wondered if you could give us a or th uh, shed some light on what was involved uh, February seventh uh, outside of Deir Ezzur. Uh, what forces uh, were attacking us? Uh, who was in charge? Uh, uh, who are we protecting ourselves against? Yeah, so I know I I would say if you don't mind, I'd prefer not. But I know you'll mind, so I'm just going to say I, I'd prefer not. I think I know a little a little too much, and I'm not sure where I can draw the line in my own mind here to give you an answer at this level. I, I recently told David about when I last left the intelligence community and came to the think tank world here at the Washington Institute and committed not to doing uh, any uh, interviews or events for three or four months till I could purge my brain of what I knew from when, and, and we'll, we will uh, respect that, so David. That notes how challenging this is. Um, this is uh, yeah. we, can, we, can, we can respect that. In the back, please, the blue blazer. Thank you. From Hudson Institute. Um, in the past, there's been some question about what our adequacy of understanding internal events in Saudi Arabia is. Uh, as concerned and and what kind of uh, collection is possible in a in a regime like that, and I guess also the problems that the high level people on both sides tend to talk to each other an awful lot, bypassing the intel community but just wondering if, if in general you could say what kind of uh, sense you have of our ability to understand the big changes underway in uh, Saudi Arabia and what our analytic capabilities are to uh, give policymakers a good sense of what might be happening, what the probabilities are, where this thing might be going. Yeah, so I, I, unfortunately I'm going to have to say here too, this is one I can't answer, at least in this forum, because of the collection uh, questions and sensitivities there. 
Signs of good questions, mind you. Yeah. Good questions. Um, I'd like to throw one out uh, myself, if I may. Uh, can you give us a little bit of an assessment of how you see Iran and Russia's, <laughs> assuming it is long-term, long-term interests uh, in Syria? And second, uh, whether you're seeing or expect to see uh, any delta between them, any friction between them um, as, uh, as that progresses, whether it's in terms of reconstruction projects or otherwise, do you see now or do you expect to see in the future tensions between Russia and Iran and Syria? Yeah, so I think for now their interests have overlapped in that both benefit from having Assad remain in place. I think both benefit as well from the lack of a solution in the country. It's the longer Assad is there, um, the better their interests are maintained. I, I think important to highlight that their interests are not necessarily the same. And in fact, what I mean when I say not necessarily is their interests are not the same as those of the Syrian people, in that the Syrian people want to have sovereignty, the Syrian people want to have security, and the Syrian people want to have some degree of a return to normalcy. Uh, again, as an intelligence professional, uh, that's not in my forecast if things are directly extended from where they are right now. I think the Russian and Iranian interests in Syria are far more modest and are far more parochial uh, than those that many of us in the international community have when we think about the Syrian issue. And what I mean by that is the, the Russians are very concerned about having access and having a say. They've accomplished that through that military intervention, decisive enough for them to restore their ally Assad, but not so decisive that they swung uh, the entire tide of the battle. I mean, back to my three conditions for cessation of conflict. They didn't decisively militarily defeat anybody. They just stopped momentum that was pronounced against Assad at that time. The Iranians, um, sure, they want Assad in place as well, but the reason is that they're quite used to Assad giving them a free run of the place so that they can continue to proliferate operatives and military technology by, with, and through Syria that further destabilize the region and, and ongoing conflicts and potentially starting new ones. So um, I, I'm a little down on the Russia, Iranian, Syrian issue. The other thing I then say there is that could they diverge in the future? Sure, uh, because there almost certainly will be continued international pressure on Syria, whether it remains as it is now in the status quo or in the future, um, should there be a change in governance or, or something that doesn't, re doesn't result in a Syria that has full sovereign control of itself that can actually prevent uh, illicit activity from occurring within and through uh, its sovereign state. I, I, the Iranians will almost certainly continue to view Syria as an important part of that Shia arc I described when I made my remarks. I, I don't know that the Russians will be as willing to accept the risk that that engenders. You know, if you look at potential uh, reactions militarily, politically, um, to the continuation of that kind of activity. So at some point, they're going to have to come to grips with each other on um, where their interests do overlap and, and where they don't. I think in the places where they don't overlap, it's not just a reasonable difference amongst friends of, you know, sure, go ahead and engage in, in destabilizing illicit activity and I'll look the other way. Um, you know, that, that could result in conflict or, or bring one. Sorry, Jeff Smith, the Center for Public Integrity again. Um, you were starting to say something interesting about ISIS money, um, and I wonder if I could draw a little bit more out of you. Um, how much of the money that they earn is still there in the region? How much has fled or been 
able to be pushed out, and what are the pathways that it, that it's using to get out of the region? Um, so I really can't answer that question, but I, I would tell you that it is an incredibly high priority for us to understand and to support Treasury and others as they take action, both uh, from a U.S. perspective and internationally, to try to identify those resources and ensure that they can't move. I'll point you to some Washington Institute publications that Kate and I have done recently on this issue and to the last UN monitoring team report, which also has a little bit of unclassified information on that. could be helpful. We have time for one last agricultural question. Awesome. These are my favorite. Not exactly agricultural. At the beginning of your comments, you said that Iraq was doing very well and that, that things are moving along, the economy is moving along. I don't recall how many Iraqis left Iraq because of the war. Have they returned? Are they coming back now? So I don't have those numbers. Um, the numbers I cited were the internally displaced people, and primarily in, in Nineveh, so the 2.6 million IDPs, and highlighted that most of them are Sunni. Um, look, we hope that everyone who's been displaced internally and externally will at some point be able to return home and will have a real life and livelihood when they do so. And, and I know that the uh, Iraqi government is committed to that as well for their own people, as are just every country, frankly, in that region that, that has a reasonable uh, government in place. So uh, important to know. I just don't have those those numbers here in front of me. Ladies and gentlemen, what you, what you want in a national intelligence manager for any program is someone who is thoughtful, measured, nuanced, uh, and that we have in, in David Catler. You can pocket that and even tell your wife. It's, it's right, been cool. live streamed. You can It'll show her. It'll be on her. the Internet. Yeah. It's already on the Internet, my friend. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> please join me uh, in thanking David for taking the time today. Thank you all for coming, those who are here in person, those who joined us online. Thank you very much. Everybody have a wonderful afternoon. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers.